Well, a good friend is someone who lets you be the best you you can be and has unconditional love the way you want in love. However, a good friend also can let you know if you're going down the wrong path. Welcome to Cambridge Forum. In a very depressing world beset by wars, climate disasters and disease, we're going to invite you to escape the pressing problems to focus on something positive, achievable and beneficial for us all. I speak, of course, of friendship. It's an area which, quite frankly, deserves a lot more of our time and attention. Research is providing us with more and more proof that having friends is essential to our continued good health. Many people are aware of the detrimental effects that social isolation and loneliness can have on physical and mental well-being, but fewer of us appreciate the advantages of keeping important relationships close and personal. To help us understand the importance of friendship, we have two wonderful guests today. Dr. Bob Waldinger, a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, therapist and Zen priest, and Dr. Jan Jaeger, a sociologist, friendship expert, and author of numerous books, including Friendgevity, Making and Keeping Friends Who Enhance and Extend Your Life. Welcome to you both. And Bob, you have been directing one of the longest running studies of adult life, and you say deep, meaningful relationships are linked with emotional well-being and physical health. Why are friendships key? And can you tell us a little more about your research? Sure. So as far as we know, it's the longest study of the same lives that's ever been done. We're in our 84th year. We're still studying some of the same people who are still living, a few, and all of their children. But we started in 1938 with a group of Harvard College undergraduates and a group of young boys from Boston's poorest neighborhoods and followed all of them all the way through their lives. And what we found were some of the most predictable things that taking care of your health really matters in terms of living longer and staying healthy. But the surprising thing was that having friends, that warm relationships, not just made us happier. That wasn't the surprise. The surprise was that it keeps us healthy that we're less likely to get the diseases of aging as soon, and people live longer if they have warmer relationships. And the physiology of that, what happens in your body? Well, there are some good reigning hypotheses. So the best data has to do with relationships as stress regulators, as emotion regulators. The idea being that all of us get into fight or flight mode when we're stressed. And that's actually a good thing. You know, if something, if we have to react to something, but most of us then come back to baseline to a kind of calm baseline physiologically when the stressor is gone. But if we're isolated or if we are in difficult, stressful relationships, we can stay in chronic fight or flight mode all the time. And what that does is it increases our circulating stress hormones. It puts us in a state of chronic inflammation. And so 
probably the best reigning hypothesis is that good relationships help us come back to baseline, help relieve stress. So would the converse be true too? Are bad friends bad for your health? I mean, it certainly shows that certain behaviors, health behaviors are mirrored in your friends. So if you're obese, your friends tend to get obese. If you exercise, they exercise. If you're anxious, they're anxious. So should we choose our friends carefully? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we should choose our friends carefully. And you're right. I mean, some of the really good work on social networks and behavior from Nick Christakis and many other investigators show that, that these behaviors are catching, they are contagious. And so, yes, if you are with people who are by and large less stressed, who take more care of themselves and each other, um, you are more likely to adopt those behaviors. So there's some responsibilities that come with friendship as well as pleasurable aspects. Well, I'm going to switch over quickly to you, Jan. You've become a national authority, really, on friendship. You've written several books on this now, and they're full of lots of good advice and tips. Let's start with what you think constitutes a good friendship and what, apart from the obvious pleasures of friendship, are the benefits of having a small group of close friends? Well, a good friend is someone who lets you be the best you you can be and has unconditional love the way you want in love. However, a good friend also can let you know if you're going down Uh, the wrong path. So there should be honesty. Uh, You shouldn't feel like you're walking on eggshells. So that that's a very important part of it. A good friend is someone where you see their text message, you can't wait to answer it. A warning sign that the friendship is not as great as it should be is if you start pulling away or keeping things to yourself. And that's another important part of good friendships, reciprocity. And it doesn't have to be reciprocity. A lot of times I also do friendship coaching and someone will say to me, I'm always the one to pick what movie we're going to go to see, or I'm always the one to uh, plan our get togethers. And I'll say, well, does your friend do anything for you besides that? So, you know, it doesn't have to be a tit for tat, but there has to be a feeling that it's equal. And and that's a very important part of it. Do you think we have to devote time and attention to this uh, nurturing? Is it something that we're a little lazy about? Well, very much so. And what's interesting is um, in Frangevity, I did interview uh, quite a few people who were dealing with friendship during the height of the pandemic. Practically everyone was very negative. And I even have a a wonderful uh, original artwork that uh, an artist in Argentina did of um, two women talking through video conferencing because that's what they had to do to keep their friendship going. But one woman, she went all the way to South America to a conference and it was stopped because of the pandemic. So there were quite a few people from around the world and instead of feeling sorry for themselves, they all got together and rented a house and for the next six months because they couldn't travel back to their countries, 
they hung out together, they developed friendships. They realized that the friendships they had back home weren't as close as they had hoped they would be. So you can turn even a negative like being far away into a positive with friendship, even though we know that a hug is important and it's great to be able to do that when you can. But if you can't, you can still keep the friendship going just as we're keeping uh, our conversation going through Zoom. Well, I wanted to ask you about the complacency factor because I know we've got all these technological tools. And of course, this happened to go on to Zoom during COVID. Bob said he started seeing his clients on Zoom. And I was surprised when he told me that many of them have elected to stay virtual, which I know from the convenience factor is probably a good thing. But I thought the reassuring hand of the therapist was like God given the healer, the touch. And how has that segued for you just with dealing with clients? We never dreamed that you could do meaningful psychological work, therapy on Zoom. And if you had told me that three years ago, I wouldn't have believed it. But all of my colleagues who do psychotherapy of all flavors say that meaningful work is possible. And that's certainly been my experience. I see patients every day. I saw a patient just before we came on this, this webinar. And what we don't know is what's missing. So we know that it's better than we thought it would be, but we don't know all of the aspects of interaction that get filtered out by these virtual platforms. And I think that's gonna be an area of really important research over the next few years, as more of our interactions are virtual. So I think the bottom line is better than most of us thought it was gonna be, but not the same, and we're not quite sure how it's not the same. Well, I wanna use myself as an example with um, work friendships. I thought about this recently that even though teaching online is going great, I don't have one new work friendship since I don't go into the school the way I used to. All of the work friendships I created were the professors that I met in the hall and we happened to have the same schedule. So we went out for lunch together. And at that coffee shop, I happened to see Bruce Willis sitting there. And it was like, whoa, Bruce Willis is in the coffee shop. <laughs> so you have these shared experiences. So I think that it's on a certain level that you can either make new relationships or keep them going. But I'm finding there isn't that same kind of connection. And I think that's what Bob is talking about, that we're going to have to research, you know, how do we try to make up for what is missing? You know, one of my colleagues who works with people on the autism spectrum has said that, in fact, many of those people feel like they're doing better on Zoom because the rules are clearer there's more predictability. And so as with everything, one size never fits all. And we're finding that for some of us, we miss the spontaneity of being able to just go out to lunch with friends on the spur of the moment at work. And for others, ah, it's a relief to have these orderly little boxes that we all sit in. 
and we raise our hands virtually. I can understand that actually, if someone was autistic, they would have much more control in this situation. And yes. if they wanted to exit, they could just hit <laughs> exit. But I found that going back before Zoom in the 90s, when I was doing the research for what became When Friendship Hurts, that people who had, they were self-conscious about themselves in some way, either their weight or in some cases they were in a wheelchair, um, they found communicating through Facebook and the internet was more comfortable than in person. So, so I think that the movement to the video platform is, is really an extension of that. And, and as Bob says, it's so important that people find what works for them. You know, there is no one size fits all. But going back to friendship, you want the friends to be in agreement with that. You know, if someone needs to have a cup of coffee and neither one has COVID and it's safe to get together, they either get the cup of coffee or the friend says, okay, you want to talk on the phone? Well, I'll find someone who does want to get together. I think I'm old school in this respect. I think that the face-to-face literally in person is very hard to substitute. And I wonder about people, particularly young people that lost that couple of years of reading cues and all the stuff you're taking in your brain's processing when you're in the presence of somebody else uh, that is not apparent. I mean, obviously this is better than texting, way better, but it's not the same for me as in person. Um, Sure. One of the elements that's really different is emotion. So we know emotion is contagious. I mean, if you've ever walked into a room and everybody's angry at each other, but you don't even know what's been said, you can tell. And certainly if you're sitting with someone who's angry or anxious, you can begin to feel it yourself. And a lot of that gets filtered on virtual platforms. So one of the things we know we lose is emotional communication in certain channels. Um, so we have to understand more about what, what that means for our relationships and also what it means for reading each other and social skills. You know, How do we read each other when some of that emotional communication gets filtered out? Okay, can we think about other options in terms of relationships now? If you, as many people did, got a pet during the pandemic, and poured all your love and attention and care into this cat or dog or bird or whatever it was, would you say that you get the same health benefits from stroking a cat or dog licking your face as you, or maybe Navon studied it, but do you think there are benefits attached to another living entity being with you? Uh, It's not quite the same as a human interaction, but. Well, in my, in my first book, Friendships, I, interviewed a woman who at that point, the only close relationship in her life was with her dog. And it definitely kept her from being totally isolated and feeling connected. I think they've done research on, especially the elderly who are isolated, cats, dogs, you know, they they make a huge difference. So, you know, it Going back to there's no one size fits all, it's also nice to add that to the mix. 
you know, having a dog or a cat or a frog or even a snake is better than being totally isolated. But let's add to that a uh, friend and, you know, let's, if possible, even add a romantic relationship. I don't think you need to have it exclusive, you know, that some a rather famous interviewer said, um, uh, romantic partners come and go, but friends are forever. Well, we don't believe that anymore. <laughs> friends can come and go too. So it's, it's really a question of, you know, who, who are the people in your life that you count on? Are they there for you? Um, what are your communication skills like? Uh, I found a part of uh, Frangevity. Do you argue constantly with your friends? Don't do that if you want to live longer. And there was a study of 10,000 men and women who found that arguing uh, with a friend actually could, could lead to uh, shortening your life. So, you know, it's, it's a case-by-case -case basis, which, which is what makes it, it exciting that there, there isn't. And by the way, uh, Bob, I watched your wonderful TED Talk. I would love to have over 400,000 book sales, the way you have over 400,000 views. And uh, what's wonderful yeah, is that finally 42. they- It's 42 million views. Oh, 42 million. Oh, okay. Even better. <laughs> Sorry. But uh, I'd love to have, uh, it's, it's wonderful that you finally got women in the study because the first 50 years it was only men. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When, when I came on, I came on in 2002 and we brought in first the, the spouses of the original men. And then starting eight years ago, we started studying all the children and fortunately more than half are women. So yeah, well, no it's, 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 hmm. no, it's important because um, over the years I've always interviewed men and women and there are dramatic differences in uh, male and female friendships. Now, a lot of people fault men that a lot of men fall into the spouse becoming the best friend once they're married. But a lot of times that's uh, transitional, you know, during those years when they have young children and they're juggling the wife, the children and the job. And then as the children get older, they start to go back to the basketball games and the poker games. And, you know, in addition to the wife and, and the children, and also women are becoming more like men in that they're getting a little bit more reticent about sharing everything about their emotions with friends because they too want to climb up the ladder because uh, one of the reasons men will hold back is they're worried that they may say something that could be used against them. So there's a lot of trust issues that have to be worked out. You know, one thing we found, we, we reviewed the friendship patterns of men and women, all the research literature. And in this review, what we found was that even though there's been a great deal of publicity about how men's and women's friendships are so different, when you look at big, rigorous studies, they're not nearly as different as they've been described. So Lillian Rubin did a lot of the original work talking about how different they were, but it turns out that they're, they're not really as different as some of the popular writing stereotypes them to be. And that's useful to know because both in terms of 
men's desires and men's greater connectedness than sometimes we give them credit for. So the Oxford research I was reading shows that women like to have 1.5 intimate relationships and the 0.5 is usually their best friend. Whereas men put, tend to put all their interests into the love partner one-on-one. And then today I was reading in the New York Times an article that as men get older, they tend to be less good at building and maintaining relationships. And they're more likely to end up struggling with all sorts of issues, substance abuse, mental illness, homelessness. So my question, I guess, is why is this? And is it something that we can nurture if it's actually nature? Is it something we can nurture? Because I've always noticed that women tend to have more and regular interaction with their friends than men. Well, I I found that early on, the average number of friends in the network that I studied was one to two best friends, uh, four to six close friends. And initially it was 10 to 20 close uh, casual friends. But then in uh, starting with Facebook in the 2000s, it, it, it escalated to 20 to 50 casual friends. And I think that casual friends are, are not given as much um, benefit as they, they do have for us. Uh, but I also discovered something interesting when I was doing my work on um, work relationships. I came up with the name Workships. And that's a work relationship that's more than a coworker, but less than a friend. And a lot of the men friendships start off in the workplace. And then once someone leaves the company or even the career, then they'll see if, it, if the workship will become a tried and true friendship. Um, so, you know, I think that uh, a lot of men have... Um, I know my father, he had one friend his whole life, but it was it was a solid friendship going back to the age of five. And part of it is time management. You know, fr- good friendship takes time. Mm. You've got to be there for all those important events, you know, weddings, births, you know, children's birthdays. I mean, you, you can't juggle too many of those because if you start sending a gift and not showing up, uh, you're going to start seeing your status lowering. So, so you know, time is, is a factor. Mary, one common theory that I think gets borne out in some of the research is that women are more socialized from the time they're young, from the time they're girls, to interact in conversation. Their play is different in that way. And that boys are more socialized to do instrumental things and activities together. Boys may play basketball together and women may play house together. And, um, and that those patterns, those socialization patterns are often continue into the kinds of, of things that friends do together as adults. So women may share more emotionally and men may uh, do more things together instrumentally. And those are patterns that shift over the life cycle. We've got some questions coming in here, um, which actually mirror some of the questions that I was going to bring up about the magic number of friends. Someone's asked here, is there a magic number of such close friendships, one to five, five to 10? It's as many as you can handle. 
yeah, yeah. Uh, because if you have a best friend in, if you live in New York City and you have a best friend in New York City, that's great. If you have another best friend that has moved to South Africa, you can still keep that best friendship going without any conflict. But if you have two best friends in the same city and they both are having a crisis and you need to choose which one are you gonna go there and be there and ha hold their hand, uh, that's when it can get a little sticky. Mm -hmm. So that's why the one to two for best friends seems to be a good number. But close friends is a larger number because it doesn't have the same requirements. I'd like to mm -hmm. offer a different view based, based on my understanding of, of like thousands of lives now, which is that there is no magic number. It's not, a, not at all. And then, well, that's what I said, by the way, when I yeah, said it's what you can handle. Right. And that we define yeah. and that we set out a number at our peril, right? Because we're all on a spectrum from people who are more introverted to people who are more extroverted. And introverts find lots of people in their lives stressful. And, and actually, that may shorten their lives. And actually for an introvert, one person may be all they need and all they want. Extroverts may love having lots of good friends. And that what we're really talking about, as you said, Jan, is, is this idea that it really depends temperamentally on what suits us. And so I just, I just wanna urge all of the, the listeners not to search for a particular number as the right number. Each person defines for themselves what the right number feels like. Okay, let me come in here with Robin Dunbar, the Oxford evolutionary psychologist, who's done a lot of work on this because he's looked in social bonding in primates and humans, done a lot of work. And he's come up with this very famous now number of 150. That's the absolute maximum outer limit on our social networks that we can have. And our small close group, he says, is around five. Yeah. That's really what we see in social groups. And here's another interesting chap. Dan Butner is a National Geographic fellow, and he studies healthy habits, social networks, and blue zones. They're the regions of the world where people live extra long lives. Um, so they're doing something right. And he says... Quote, curate your immediate social network and focus on three to five real world friends instead of distant Facebook friends. So I wanted to each of you ask, Janet, you go for it and then I'll ask Bob what you think of that. Is a, well, is a friend in the hand better than a hundred on Facebook? <clears throat> oh, well, you know, you, you know, the answer to that. Um, you know, I had a, I had a birthday brunch for um, a milestone birthday a couple of years ago. And um, there were uh, five or six friends there. And, you know, it was great. I, I didn't want to go for the, the party with 50. And it's interesting because someone I know through business, she had a party for her milestone and it was uh, a lower number but I thought she and I were friends not just workships and I wasn't invited to the party oh wow and she told me that the restaurant had a very firm cutoff and what was the cutoff 50 
Oh. So I hadn't made the 50 cut. Oh, dear. <laughs> so I, I think it goes back to what Bob and I have been talking about. You know, it really depends. I, I have a friend who who's, she's one of my close friends. She's not my best friend anymore. She used to be my best friend in our 20s, but our lives went in different directions. But she's still a close friend. She's able to juggle 10 close friends. That's her skill. She can do it. Does she do anything else? Oh, yeah. She she's, uh, works in the theater. You know, she bicycle rides around Manhattan and she's always busy, always busy. And that would be a lot for me, you know, because I wrote, in fact, I wrote a list of the friends I care about who I want to send Mother's Day cards to. And it was a manageable list or I'd go broke if it was 50. I'd like to thank our wonderful guests today, Dr. Bob Waldinger and Dr. Jan Yeager for bringing this wonderful insight and advice. Cambridge Forum is made possible through the generosity of Herbert and Dorothy Vetter, the Lowell Institute and Cambridge Community Foundation. So I thank you very much. Thank you.